Leaning Toward Wisdom, episode 657. There's actually a few hundred more. I had to look it up. I think 657 is... That might be the last couple of iterations leaning toward wisdom. Ah, who cares? Nobody's keeping count anyway. Learning optimism. You find what you're looking for. Yeah, that's this episode. 657 of Leaning Toward Wisdom. Welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Kentrell. I'm your host here, coming to you from Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. We're emerging from an ice storm. Yeah, we had thunder sleet. You ever experienced that? Thunder sleet? Thunder, lightning, but not rain. Sleet, a little bit of snow. Yeah, we had that. I'm recording today on a Thursday. Storm hit Monday. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been that, that kind of a week. Uh, those, those of you that are living up north, you, you laugh maniacally at us, and I get it. Here's what you don't know. Well, you might not think about. You've got equipment. You've got construction. You've you got all kinds of things that are in play for the climate where you live, and so do we. And we're not equipped. You know, these, these events that happen sporadically and they happen for a week here, a week there, days here, days there, you know, come on, we've got to endure triple digit summer heat for way longer than we have to endure this kind of stuff. So there is that. And then there's the equipment or the lack thereof, like for the roads and stuff. People were talking about if you can get out to the main roads, you're, you're probably going to be okay. Problem is you can't get out of your neighborhood. And some people, you can't even get out of your driveway. Hey, I'm optimistic, though. I have learned to be optimistic. Kind of naturally bent that way anyway. Learned optimism. You find what you're looking for. Uh, the story, it may date back earlier than 1917. I'm not sure, but that was my, my cursory study and research proved that that was true. President Reagan, he made it famous because it was among his favorite jokes. And I will freely admit to you that is likely where I first heard it. Oh, yeah, I, I was a fan of President Reagan. Uh, a couple had twin boys who were six years old worried that these boys had developed some extreme personalities because one was a complete pessimist and the other a total optimist. So the parents took them to a psychiatrist and first the psychiatrist treated the pessimistic kid, right? He's going to try to brighten this kid's outlook. And so he takes him into a room piled to the ceiling with all these brand new toys Instead of hollering with delight, like most little boys would do this little boy, he just burst into tears and the psychiatrist said, well, what's, what's the matter? Don't you want to play with any of these toys? And the little boy just crying his eyes out said, 
Yes, but, but if I did, I'd only break them. Well, next the psychiatrist treats the optimist and trying to dampen this kid's outlook, puts him in a room piled to the ceiling with horse manure. And instead of holding his nose in disgust and screaming and hollering, this optimistic kid is just gleeful, just gleeful. And was giving the exact response that the psychiatrist was hoping to hear from his pessimistic brother. And then this kid climbs to the top of this pile of horse dung drops to his knees and is gleefully digging with his bare hands, scoop after scoop. And the doctor says, what do you think you're doing? And the kid says, well, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> I have used that punchline. I, who knows how many times with all this manure, there must be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> Dr. Martin Seligman. He is the Fox leadership professor of psychology at the university of Pennsylvania. Oh, he's a big shot. Smarty pants. I have referred to his book learned optimism. The subtitle is how to change your mind and your life. That book was published in 1991. I bought it that year. I have no idea how I found it, but I did. I was, I was a guy that loitered in bookstores back when we had them. And I was the father of two elementary school kids who were fast approaching junior high at the time. And as I looked through this book, I, I was interested in reading it for myself, but I was particularly interested in seeing if I could help my kids learn or improve optimism, self-talk. Self-talk was, you know, it was a pretty active conversation with my kids, especially my son, because I just knew that their futures were going to be greatly impacted by the messages that they told themselves. And my son in particular at the time, really hard on himself. I mean, overtly hard on himself and notoriously telling himself really horrible things like, you know, I can't do this. I'll never be able to do this. Here's, here's the great news. The great news is that kid is 42 now and is pretty much the opposite of that. So hey, couldn't be prouder. Well, the book had a chapter about teaching kids to be more optimistic, and it included an assessment that, as a parent, you can give your kids. Well, I had my kids take this little quiz so that it could display their level of optimism, and it turns out that they they weren't they weren't overly optimistic. Okay, they they weren't overly pessimistic either. And this whole notion of learning optimism, which I had not thought about or considered before until reading that book, it stuck with me. Dr. Seligman contrasted learning optimism with learning helplessness. That book really uses those, those terms, optimism versus helplessness. That is the belief that we are incapable of changing our circumstances. Mostly, we think of it is having a victim mentality. That's you hear everybody talk about, you know, this victim mindset, victim mentality. 
I just, I grew increasingly more fond of his term helplessness, helplessness, because it, it seemed, it seemed more insidious and it made me think that more people would likely disapprove of admitting helplessness when they might embrace being a victim. I'm a victim I'm a, because the one tends to absolve you of any responsibility, but the former does not. The helplessness does not. And as a dad, I spent a lot of time coaching my kids to tell themselves positive messages. You know, that little engine that could kind of a thing. And I would say that the little engine that could, that may have been an early childhood development story, but it's true. It doesn't matter how old you are. Henry Ford is quoted as having said, think you can, think you can't, either way, you'll be right. Think you can, think you can't, either way, you'll be right. Many of us have heard this all of our lives. It doesn't mean that we have mastered doing it. Because frequently there is this big, big gap between what we know and what we do. The challenge is to control our thinking. And experience has taught, well, they've taught me that many of us, job one is to learn that we can control our thinking because it's easy to think that we're just simply stuck with our thoughts. I mean, you know, come on, my thoughts, they just, they are what they are. I mean, we are who we are. Man alive, I I hear that every day. We are who we are. It's, It's the refrain of resignation. It's as though we're just, we're unable to grow. We can't improve. We can't change. We can't develop into some better version of ourselves. We we are what we are. The twin boys in President Reagan's favorite joke were predisposed. One was predisposed towards extreme pessimism. The other toward extreme optimism. And yes, we are absolutely amused at the behavior of both of them. And maybe you're thinking that, well, both of them reacted ridiculously. And maybe they did. But their viewpoints had a direct impact on how each of them behaved in that moment when the psychiatrist put them in these situations. They both took action based on how they viewed the situation. They both took action based on what they were thinking and how they were assessing the circumstances that they were in. The one, the pessimist, embraced misery, embraced suffering, thought the worst thing that could happen. I can play with any one of these toys, and I'm sure to break it. Helplessness was his chosen path. Personally, I've never found any good reason. I've never found any good outcome associated with helplessness. The other kid, the optimist, he embraced... (laughs) He embraced his elevated expectations, even in the face of apparent negativity. And again, I've never found any good reason. I've never found any good outcome that makes his viewpoint counterproductive. I've said it to you more times than I can count. The only response that people offer as a downside 
to optimism is, well, you're going to be disappointed. And I just, I laugh out loud and I just say, like, that's not going to happen anyway. You're going to be disappointed. So how does optimism hurt us? How does optimism magnify your disappointment? It doesn't. You will be disappointed. Life is going to do that to you. And that's not a pessimistic view. That's just reasonable. That's realistic. Listen, learning optimism is not about avoiding disappointment. We can't live our lives avoiding disappointment. And it could be argued, well, it's impossible to do this, by the way. But if it were possible to avoid disappointment, you realize what that would demand of you? It would demand that your expectations are so ridiculously low, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. This isn't about chasing a perfect life where everything goes exactly the way we want. It's really about something much, much more important. I'll give you two words. Responsibility. Accountability. Pessimism is about embracing helplessness. It's about excuse making. It's about seeing ourselves as helpless victims, unable to do anything to improve our circumstances. You know, coaching clients will regularly say, well, you know, when you put it like that, <laughs> and I'll say, well, okay, put it any way you want. How are you going to put it? How else would you put it? I'm sitting across from a CEO, a business owner. He's rehearsing a possible market move. And then he just kind of mutters almost under his breath. Well, that likely won't pan out. And I stop him and I say, why not? He goes on, he gives me some litany of reasons why it's likely going to fail. And so I ask, why might it work? And he very, just as quickly, he goes on and gives me, I don't know, and he maybe even more reasons why it could likely succeed. And then he stops and he says, I see what you did there. And I said, good. I really didn't want to have to explain it again. You know, we chuckle. High performers are not immune from bouts of pessimism. I am absolutely not immune from bouts of pessimism. I have to manage it every single day. And one of the biggest things for me is having to manage the input of idiotic information, which quite frankly is increasingly (laughs) more and more and more reading everything, listening to everything, believing everything. And I just sometimes true confession. Sometimes I just, I feel like one of those three monkeys, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. And it's not that I'm trying to do that. It's not that I'm trying to not know something but I just look, I'm looking through the lens of, is this going to be helpful at all? And so much of the information that we take in so much of the, I I don't care what the source is. I saw, I didn't see, but I heard Megan Kelly. She was on Mike Rose podcast the other day and she made a comment and other, other very smart journalists have made similar, similar comments. But she was talking about the impact that fear has in today's journalism, which really isn't anything but commentary. It's not journalism, but that's a subject for another day. 
but that pandering to fear is a big, big deal. It, it is, it is pretty much job one of media to foster fear. Well, people can say, well, that see that right there, that that's pessimist. No, that's not pessimism. That's just reality. And people say, well, that's what you choose to. Yeah, there's no question. I'm choosing what I think and you are too. But in choosing to think that people are pandering to try to instill in us fear and the fear mongering is being elevated to new heights every day, you can't, you can't just give yourself a steady diet of that. In my opinion, well, let me speak for myself. I can't uh, ingest a steady diet of that and maintain any degree of optimism. I just, so I just choose to pick things very carefully and would that we could conquer our mind. I don't know that we ever conquer it. I think we can absolutely get a better grip on it. And I think some of us are trying, but I do believe this. It is a constant act of courage to get a grip on our thoughts. And I would also argue that it may be some of the most profitable work that we can do Would that more of us were doing it, but again, subject for another day, you find what you're looking for. If the last number of years of the political unrest in our country and globally haven't proven to us that pretty much all of us, we find what we're looking for. And some things are easy to spot. Some things are easy to find. I was once the proud owner of a 2000 Phoenix yellow Acura type R Integra. And I drove that car for a number of years until I sold it to my son. And I, I easily would see the few other yellow type R's on the road. In fact, I more easily spotted all yellow cars because well, that's what I was driving. That's I'm staring at the hood of this thing. I'm seeing this yellow car that I'm driving around in and yellow cars then nor now were all that common in similar fashion. It's easy to spot opportunities when that's what you're focused on, when that's what you're looking for, or it's easy to spot challenges. It's easy to see difficulties. It's easy to see constraints when that's what you're looking for. Just like it's easy to be angry, easy to be disgruntled, easy to be filled with blame when those viewpoints, they dominate your thoughts. If anger and being disgruntled and blaming other people, if that's how you choose to think most of the time, guess what? That's the lens through which you're going to look at the world and you will find what you're looking for. We become what we constantly think about and how we think about it. All the more reason for us to be cautious, all the more reason for us to carefully guard our thoughts, to guard our hearts. Can we change how we think? Can we really? Is the subtitle of Martin Seligman's book, Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life, is that possible? Can you change your mind? Can you change how you think? Well, of course. 
Of course, we've all done it, and we've all done it many, many times. We've changed our minds more times than we can count. And it's not always provoked by some external influence either. It's not that we're just a victim of fate. Sometimes we just altered our decision. We choose something different. You know, sometimes I feel like regular mustard. Sometimes I want brown spicy mustard. Sometimes I want honey mustard. I mean, it's, it's not always something so significant, but it's not always something so insignificant either. And it may often be something that's very important. It may be something that's totally unimportant. Where do you want to go eat? Do you want to wear that green shirt or the blue shirt? What do you want to drink? I mean, life is filled with lots and lots and lots of daily decisions. And these vary depending on our mood or our preference at that moment. I can get up some mornings and I, I, I will grab a shirt. I don't, I don't know why. And I'll, I'll, I may look at another shirt that's completely different color, completely different pattern and think, nah, I think today I want to wear this one. Truth be told, I can love both shirts, but it's like one is calling me, you know, I mean, is that, is it really, I don't know. It's preference. These changes in our mind, I don't, I don't know that they usually have anything to do with optimism. Really? I had to look up the technical definition or the dictionary definition of optimism, hopefulness and confidence about the future or the successful outcome of something. Picking a place to eat. Don't have anything to do with that. What color shirt I wear. Got nothing to do with that. Whatever mustard I want in this particular moment doesn't really have anything to do with hopefulness and confidence about the future or the successful outcome of something. It's just, it's what I kind of prefer in the moment. So from mustard to dining choices to color selections, those are not choices made with hopefulness, but they're not choices made with hopelessness either. They're just whatever we want in the moment. Now, weightier things like relationships and careers and finances and you know, these other activities that we may say define our lives, those do tend to be determined by our outlook, by our approach, by how we see the world and how we see our place in the world. I'll bet you or somebody you know frequently says something that demonstrates how unlucky they feel like they are. You know, you know somebody, you're thinking of somebody. I'm thinking of a number of people. Now I understand why people, I understand why people who feel just the opposite, probably just keep quiet about it. You know, those people who feel like, man, I'm, I'm never unlucky because it would, they would sound like braggarts, but I do know people who, from where I'm looking, at least they appear to have a Midas touch, you know, right. And remarkably, this is fascinating to me. These people that I know who sort of have a, this Midas touch, right? Everything they touch just turns to gold. They aren't the brightest or the best, but man, they sure do seem to find success in most everything they attempt. It's, it's, it's downright puzzling, isn't it? Years of looking at people like that has shown me a few things. Number one, these people expect to succeed. The people that I'm thinking of that, that I would, tell you, man, they have got the Midas touch. Everything they, everything they try just seems to work out. 
they expect to succeed. To a person, these are not people who ever begin anything thinking it's going to fail. In fact, they don't even consider that as a possibility. Now, it doesn't mean that it's impossible for them to fail. It just means they don't give it any space in their brain. They make their very first step. In fact, they make every step with the assumption that this is going to work out. Well, isn't that interesting? Do you do that? Number two, these folks, these folks that I, I know who seem to have a Midas touch, they just have an unabashed zest for promoting their work. They have zero reservations about shouting out to the world that their pursuit is worth, is worth supporting. Does that sound like you? Doesn't sound like me. I can tell you that for a fact. I mean, that, that the first one is way easier for me than this one. This, this unabashed zest to promote yourself and what you do because you so firmly believe that it's got just such, I, I, I don't struggle with that. I fail at that. Number three, these folks that I'm thinking of who have this Midas touch, they don't let challenges or setbacks determine the final outcome. They are people who have a resilience that is forged in their optimism that they will figure this out. The challenge, that's eh, just a blip. It's just a blip on the radar that I got to deal with. It's just a minor inconvenience at this moment in time. And I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to figure it out pretty quickly. The challenges for them are not roadblocks. They're just speed bumps that slow down their progress. And it's often humorous to me how I can watch these people and they can get very angry at the challenges and they're not discouraged. They're just angry that they've had to slow down. <laughs> it's kind of like this. How dare you slow me down? <laughs> kind of a spirit. And number four, the thing that I observe about the folks that I'm thinking of and know who have this quote unquote Midas touch, they don't have any reservations about changing their mind. If success isn't quite what they were aiming for, they achieve whatever they set out. But once they got there, it's like, okay, well, this isn't quite what I really thought it would be. They will pull the plug without any fear or hesitation. If the success is wonderful, they may find a great exit so they can just get on with the next conquest. Because for many of them, it's not about the getting it's. It's not about the destination. It's about the getting there. It's about the journey for them. They just want to get on. I just want to get on another journey. Most that I'm thinking of, they don't start with that in mind. That is, they don't start with the exit necessarily in mind, but they very quickly adapt because they just are not hung up about changing their mind. Confidence. Man, confidence plays a big role, doesn't it? Confidence in what? Well, confidence in your own competence. It does not mean you have to be the smartest. It just means that we have to be confident in our abilities, in our skills, in whatever else that we bring to the table, that we have confidence that we can accomplish this thing. Or like I've pointed out about these folks with a Midas, we've got the competence to figure it out. All of the people that I'm thinking about with the Midas touch didn't necessarily 
have full understanding when they made step one or even when they made step 100. Here's what they did have though. They had tremendous confidence that they could get it done because they had confidence that they could figure it out. They had confidence that they would figure it out. My question would be, if you're talking about confidence in what else would you be confident? I mean, confidence is such a personal thing because you've got to have the confidence in yourself that you can do this thing, that you can figure this thing out. Remember, learning optimism is about you find what you're looking for. And if you're looking for, woe is me, I'm not going to be able to do that. That's what you're going to find. Optimism isn't based on being world-class. Come on. If that were the case, then only a very, very, very select few people would ever be able to practice it. No, it's based on our belief in ourselves. Ah, you know, I know, but that seems so rather self-centered. So there's got to be more to it than that. Uh, Is there? I mean, really, is there? I'm thinking about the 10-year-old son that I raised who's playing little league ball and strikes out and I can't hit the ball. I'm not going to be, you know, just, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Be careful what you tell yourself. I, I, I spent more time on my knees staring into these little eyes and saying, listen, you have got to start telling yourself that you can do this. This little person, this little voice in your ear that's chirping at you constantly saying, you can't do this. You'll never be able to do that. Oh, this, you won't, this won't work. You have got to kill that little voice. Now, little did I know as a father of a little boy who's now a man with his own family and three kids of his own, that he would grow into this adult that does not seem to be vexed by those things that plagued him as a 10-year-old. And, man, I couldn't be happier. I'm not saying he doesn't battle those things. Likely he does. But they don't define him. You know what does? Confidence defines him. Learning optimism defines him. He's finding what he's looking for. And would that we all would just, I don't know, look for something wiser. Well, what'd I say? 657? <laughs> Need to start keeping track of these things. I've got hundreds and hundreds of episodes that are no longer online. But I think there's, there's probably close to that many that are currently online. I could be wrong. Haven't gone back and looked. You don't care. The only reason I bring it up is because you would have thought that I would have learned a few things by now, wouldn't you? <laughs> including, including optimism and podcasting. Hey, with all this manure, there must be a pony in here somewhere. You and me, we're going to keep digging. That's right. We're going to keep digging through all this crap until we find the pony. Because he is here somewhere. 
My name is Randy Cantrell. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. Modern Tales of an Ancient Pursuit. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. 